How many of you like a healthy competition? Or, or maybe a better question is, uh, how many of you like our family? Competition is a bad thing because that's when our flesh comes out. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's probably a, a sheer characteristic. We, we, we do things to the max and we, we, we like competition maybe a, a little too much. And, um, but competition can be good. At least in terms of, of, of a struggle, in, in terms of a conflict, in terms of, of struggling and competing in the right ways. Uh, you, you see this truth or deception, and maybe you're wondering, okay, wait a second, where are we? What are we doing? And why are we reading through Second Peter? As you, those of you who have been around uh, long enough will know that that in the summer times we usually take a break from our normal study and uh, we kind of pull away and, 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 and come into another text. And so this summer we're kind of continuing what we did last year in terms of picking up where we left off in First Peter and then finishing off with, with Second Peter. So kind of filling out our, our discussion about, um, about this church that's in scattered throughout Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, and Galatia. Uh, this church had been scattered. They're called strangers and aliens. And, and, and what is the, the rest of the story? What, is, what does Peter want them to know? As we get into this, this letter today, and as we move through this letter over the next uh, 10 to 12 weeks, what we're going to see is there is a struggle that's taking place. In 1 Peter... There was opposition that came from the outside. In, in 2 Peter, we're going to see that there is a struggle that is at the forefront, but it's much more sinister. It's much more dangerous because it's a conflict that's actually coming from within. A, a conflict that's coming from a, from a place of surprise. It's, it's, it's even, as some might consider, a place of safety. As you look around and you, and you consider uh, the church that God has put together, uh, this is the context in which Peter is writing. This is where the struggle for the gospel and the struggle for faith is really coming to a head. This is where it matters the most. <laughs> the battle lines are drawn very easily when we're thinking about those who are in and those who are outside the church. But when it's coming from within, then it becomes much more difficult to decipher who is with the gospel and who is not. And, and that's what Second Peter is all about, helping this church to be steady, to be established, to be secure in the faith, and as we'll see this morning, a faith that, that flourishes because of the righteousness of Christ Faith that flourishes because of the saving work of Christ. Faith that, that flourishes because of the knowledge of Christ. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, will write a similar warning as the words that we're going to see in 2 Peter. He writes to Timothy shortly before his death in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, speaking about the struggle, this conflict that Timothy will face in the church. Here's what he says. But understand this, 
that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Does that sound familiar? Do you see some of that happening in, in the world around you? Do you see that taking place in culture? And to be quite honest, the, the, the same kinds of attitudes that are in the culture that we are steeped in are beginning to infiltrate the church. But notice, he goes on. He, 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 he compares some of these more superficial kinds of sins with the more sinister kinds of sins. They're heartless. They're unappeasable. They're slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here it is. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. These are people in the church. These are people who teach. These are people who lead. These are people who carry influence. These are people within the church that you may be sitting next to. And Peter, like the Apostle Paul, will help provide some caution and warning and the neon signs that say, danger, here are the things to look for. Here are the attitudes to be aware of. Here are the things you need to be mindful of. Uh, of. Be watchful, be sober, be vigilant, because you're at war. And the struggle has come to a location near you. It's come even into your church, even into your so-called Christian family. Be aware. As we closed out the little letter of 1 Peter, Peter will end in these words, which kind of help provide a transition to 2 Peter when he says in 1 Peter 5.12, he says, By Sylvanius, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Be established. Be secure. Be confident. Stand firm firm in the faith. And as Jude will say in his little letter, which follows Second Peter, a couple of books later will say much the same thing. A lot of the same kinds of descriptions are there as well, where, where Jude will say, contend for the faith. You're in a competition. You're in a battle. Beware. Be alert. It's dangerous. Know what to look for. Guard your own heart. Guard your family. Guard your brothers and sisters in Christ. Guard yourselves against the danger, the perilous danger of teachers who would seek to pull you away from the things of God. We're going to look at the first two verses this morning of 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me read these verses to you again. And there are, there's a common word that comes up repeatedly throughout these two verses. And I want to call your attention to that because this is what is at the forefront of Peter's mind. This is what matters to Peter. And this is kind of how we're going to, to, to form our outline for this morning. Notice, Simon Peter, 
a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What was the common phrase? What was the common term that Peter seems so committed to bring to the forefront? Who are we talking about this morning? We're talking about Jesus. And in this little letter, and especially in this opening, Peter wants to draw our attention, our focus, to the only thing that matters, and which, by the way, will establish and secure your identity as an individual. What is your relationship with Jesus? Who are you? And Peter will begin by by helping this church recognize who they are, and who they are will relate to how they understand and how they are in fellowship with Jesus. It's dependent upon their relationship with Jesus Christ. Peter understands that everything that he was and everything that this church was was dependent upon a relationship with Christ. Of course, we know Jesus, in his final meal with the disciples before his crucifixion, makes this very clear. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to have a relationship with God? You have to come through the pathway of faith with Jesus. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, will help Nicodemus recognize that there's only two categories of people. He says in John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You're either condemned or you enjoy peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. And and, and your relationship with Jesus determines your destiny. And if this church was going to remain strong, if they were going to enjoy the benefits of grace and peace that we find in verse 2, the benefits of favor from God and well-being, they needed to understand and prioritize their relationship with Christ. Jesus is a continuing theme of this letter. We're going to see this morning in these two verses that Jesus is Christ, Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is Lord. And and there are some important uh, details for us to know that that come as a result of those titles, come as a a result of, of recognizing the theology of God. But we see, and I think in your notes, you also have a number of the verses that continue to point out this recurring theme of Jesus. Jesus is the resounding theme of this letter because because Peter understands that everything that we are is dependent upon 
our relationship with Christ. In chapter 1, verse 8b, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1.11b, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And on and on it goes. Jesus is what's on Peter's mind. He will settle the hearts. He will establish the souls of, these, of this church. Each of our points this morning will stem from this relationship with Christ and our, our, our recognition of who Jesus is. First, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ is what uh, Peter alludes to here. Part of it is a name, but, but part of it is a designation of, of Jesus as Messiah in terms of the promised one. This perhaps comes front and center for us in the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember this confession of Peter when he says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Those who recognize that G the true nature of Jesus as Messiah are those who have had the unveiling, as it were, the Spirit who has illuminated their hearts and helped them see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ that only happens as God reveals the truth about the nature of Jesus and opens up their heart to respond to him in this way. Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, the promised one, the fulfillment of prophecy. And Peter knew that if this church was going to experience the benefits of the favor and grace of God, they must come to a place of recognizing and having a relationship with him. But they also need to be dependent upon the mission given to them by Jesus Christ. That's our second point. Dependent on the mission given by Jesus Christ. As this uh, confession of Peter is given, now Jesus responds to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he says, and I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus knew the role that Peter would play. He knew that Peter, and it's a play on words, uh, Peter which means little stone, God would use Peter as a means by which he would help to start and plant and found this church. Peter and the rest of the apostles. Ephesians chapter two, I think it's verse 20. It says, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. God would use Peter to help start and plant this church. He would use this little stone to point to the massive foundation of the rock of Christ himself. Peter would have that role. What a privilege it was for Peter to be placed in this role of pointing to Christ in this way. And Jesus knew what that future role of Peter would be so that in their first interaction together in John chapter 1, verse 42, we find that he, who was Peter's brother Andrew, brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. 
This was all a setup for the mission that God had intended for Peter. God had a purpose for Peter to accomplish. That purpose would only be fulfilled as Peter would keep his eyes fixed on Christ, would orient his life to follow Christ and to do what Christ said. And this church too would enjoy the benefits of carrying out the purpose of God as they made Jesus front and center, the the whole focus of their attention. They would enjoy that relationship, but they would also carry out his mission. Peter refers to himself here at the beginning, this opening phrase, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It was important for Peter not only to align himself with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, but but also to help uh, designate that, that he, in fact, was the one who was writing this little letter. He was going to make some bold uh, warnings in this letter, some strong directives, some really hard statements, and he was going to set the truth against the deception. He was going to help the people in this church become aware of the dangers of false teaching, and, and so it was important for him as an authority to speak into the lives of this church and help call attention to what really mattered, to call attention to truth. He will make statements to this church in the face of a rising threat, a growing deception, a sensuality, a false teaching that was finding its way into this this little church. Peter begins with his full name in order to designate his authority, but also to, to align his heart in posture to Christ as a servant, which is really the, the word doulos, and in the, in the best rendering of that word in the Greek is slave. Peter saw himself as one who was devoted, one who was loyal, one who was placed in the service of Christ himself one who was under obligation, one who was owned by Jesus himself, derived his function and his fullness from the master Jesus. He was also an apostle, one who was commissioned, commissioned and sent by Christ to speak the words of Christ to others. In this letter, Peter will constantly draw the contrast between his status and the status of those who were counterfeit. And here in chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to himself as a slave of Christ, and he sets himself against those in chapter 2, verse 19, who will be slaves of corruption. There's only two categories. You'll either be a slave of Christ, a slave of righteousness, or you will be a slave of sin, a slave of corruption. And Peter wants this church to recognize you can, you can only have it two ways. The relationship that they have with Jesus needs to be a prevailing goal for them as people to help establish them as his people. So we saw what they are. Now we see in the second part of verse one what they have. What do they have? Peter is writing to this group of believers that he references here to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
What do they have? Well, they have a precious faith. They have a precious faith. Peter now now describes his audience. He describes them in terms that calls attention to the relationship with Christ. Of course he would do that. Because as he recognizes his identity, his function, and, and, and his posture that is, that is with respect to who God is, he wants this church to understand they're going to enjoy the benefits of living as Christians as they come to the same place in their life. They recognize the faith that they've been given, this precious faith that they have. It's a faith that he describes as that which is being offered a faith that is offered or obtained, which means to receive, to be chosen by lot, to be a beneficiary. It's unearned, it's undeserved. Other places of Scripture help us to, to see that, that this is the kind of thing that comes by the will of God. <laughs> and so this church is experiencing the, the, the benefits of a gift of God, having obtained this precious faith. He describes it as, as this equal kind of faith, and, and it's really the word for preciousness. It tries to, to, to create a, a tie between these two concepts. It's equal to, or as precious as, or pertaining to equal value. The word that's rendered the same kind. Peter while he's an apostle, Peter, although he got to experience the benefits of personal, one-on-one relationship with Jesus, he walked with Christ, he heard the words of Christ, he got to see the miracles of Christ, he enjoyed fellowship in close proximity with Christ, but Peter wants this church to understand there is nothing that distinguishes him above them in terms of faith. They have the same precious faith. They're on equal ground. They enjoy the same benefits. Peter's status has not been elevated from theirs. Everyone comes to God on equal footing. Everyone enjoys the benefits of faith and stands on level ground. This like precious faith, as the New King James translates it. So what is this faith? Well, we could think it is objective faith, meaning the totality of truth, the, the, the doctrines, the theology of God, the, the scripture as it were, the, the, the faith as it's described for us in the Bible. But it's better to understand this as faith as to, in terms of our faith in finding and receiving salvation. There is no article, there's no definite article in this Phrase, and so it helps us to understand the, the quality of faith that is personalized. God has given the gift of faith to every believer as we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It is by divine will. It is a gift of God's favor to us to help us respond to him in faith because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. But we're still left with a question. Okay, so these are believers, but, but who are they specifically? And we find in chapter 3, verse 1, 
Notice, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Which helps us understand that that Peter is writing to the same group of people. He's writing to these, these scattered Christians in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, this group of believers who had experienced so much hardship from the outside, so much opposition, so much persecution and suffering that, that begins to, that, that, that transcends and, and moves through the book of 1 Peter. He commends their faith in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, in honor, in glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This precious, genuine, tested, enduring faith that they've been given, and that preciousness comes to the surface through testing and the world around can see the genuineness of their faith and now it's being tested again. And Peter draws attention to their faith and wants to call them to hunker down and enjoy the benefits of a faith because of a precious Savior. But also notice they have a perfect Savior. Not only a precious uh, faith, but a perfect Savior. It's a salvation that comes by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Greek construction that Peter uses here only points to Jesus, not only points to Jesus as Savior, but also to Jesus as God. Again, there is no definite article, and these two uh, words, God and Savior, are connected by this conjunction and. Jesus is God and Savior in no uncertain terms. Jude will do the same thing in his short letter, letter where he's trying to address the, the church and trying to help them contend for the faith. They needed to understand where their salvation came from and, and what they were defending, what they were contending for. They needed to recognize that Jesus was God and Savior. Notice Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forever. Amen. Jesus as Savior and God will keep them and establish them and present them blameless. That is the work of God in saving souls and keeping us until the day he comes. Faith that is granted to this church is based not upon personal merit. It's based upon and comes through the righteousness of God alone. What a blessing to know that however many times we fail, however many times we drop the ball, however many times we fall on our face, 
that salvation is not dependent upon our merits, on our performance, on our being the way that God wants us to be, but based entirely and solely, completely on the work of Christ. And Peter will now differentiate in his letter the difference between those who have and embrace the righteousness of God versus those who push it away, these counterfeit false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Again, drawing the contrast. He says in chapter 2, 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Again, the contrast. You can only have it one way. You anchor and tether your heart to the righteousness of Christ or you try to do it on your own and you stand outside of the righteousness of Christ and then you will be condemned like these false teachers were. Believers, their saving faith is available because of the righteousness of Christ alone. And finally, in verse two, we turn to how we grow. How do we grow? We're gonna see here in verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We grow through knowledge of God. We grow through knowledge of God. And as this knowledge of God flourishes in our heart as we, as God's people, continue to orient our focus not, on, not just on God, but, but on the, the truth that he has given to us from his word. We will be those who enjoy this flourishing, growing, kind of cultivating life. My son asked me yesterday, he said, have you ever been deceived? I thought, Wow, yeah, I, I don't know anybody who hasn't ever been deceived. Have you ever been deceived? Um, m- maybe from your spouse, or m- maybe from your family members, m- your kids perhaps ha- have deceived you. Uh, I-, I think about some of the, the games we used to play a- as kids. Like, did you, ever, did you ever say or hear the phrase, if your hand is bigger than your face, then you've got cancer. You ever, you ever heard that one? So, so what do you do? You, you put your hand, oh, it's not as big as my face, and then the person smacks your face and bops you in the nose. Or, or, or have you ever played the, the game where you're, you're, um, you're arm wrestling, right? You say, I bet you I can beat your arm wrestling with one finger. And they go, okay, I'll try that one. See how strong you are. And so you say, okay, just pull your, pull your fist up to your chin, and I'm just going to do it with one finger. So you can, you can hold it down, then when they get nice and tight, you let it go, and boom, right there in the... I guess you guys have never done these things. <laughs> or or, or how, about, how about the game where, where you can make a coin disappear by putting it under a, a, a bottle of water? Have you ever seen that one? So, so you, you put the coin over the water and you say, hey, it's gone. And so they go to look down the bottle to see if it's gone and you, you squeeze that water all over their face. Man, I mean, you, guys, you guys are really mature. You guys are really... 
These are, these are games for immature people. I, I'm glad you've never done these kinds of things. I do appreciate the, the new feature now on the phone that, that when someone calls and it says potential spam, and you can know, <laughs> I'm not going to answer that one. Peter, he's yearning for a church that embraces and strives for knowledge. <laughs> because the truth is, if you know what's coming, if you know the danger, you can avoid the danger. You won't get the water in the face or the punch in the nose. Peter wants to help alleviate this church from something much more dangerous than just a, pun a punch in the nose. He wants to rescue them from what we find in chapter 2, which was condemnation, destruction, and the wrath of God on sinful people. And so, here he is, Peter, at the end of his life. He's about ready to die. He knows this to be true. We see that in, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. And so he wants to, to stir them up to more knowledge. He wants to create um, remembrance for them so they, 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 they continue to, to understand and know the truth. They can be warned against the, against the dangers of the lie. Therefore, he says, I intend always. This is chapter 1, verse 12. I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Why? Because he wants this church to be established in knowledge, the knowledge of God. So he stirs them up in, in an attempt to, to stimulate their thinking, to refresh their memory to help them have this pure and wholesome and complete kind of thinking. Because he knows that the knowledge of God is what's going to help to steady their future. Peter will hold up the benefits of the knowledge of God throughout this letter, and he will set it in contrast with false knowledge. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. There are false prophets, pseudo-prophetes. There are false teachers, chapter 2, verse 1, pseudo-didaskalas. There are false words we find in chapter 2, verse 3. There are irrational animals in chapter 2, verse 12, comparing these brute beasts, these animals, these false teachers, and their barbaric kind of thinking. Ah, lagos, without the word. And then there are ignorant people, chapter 2, verse 12. Ah, gnao, without knowledge. And then there are waterless springs in chapter 2, verse 17. Ah, nudras, without water. They have nothing to benefit you as people. They have nothing to offer you. They are without knowledge, without truth, without water, without refreshment, without grace. They have nothing to offer you. Don't run after them. Pursue true knowledge of God. You can enjoy the benefits of his grace and peace that he has to offer this word knowledge was a key word for Peter. 16 times in 2 Peter in various forms. 
just to kind of give you a, a, a mini tour, and we don't have time to, to give you the full tour, but I, just in chapter one, the, the first eight verses that, that Jeff read for us this morning, notice in chapter one, verse three, the significance of this knowledge and what it does. It says, all that pertains to life in godliness through the what church? The knowledge of him who called us. The benefits of all that God has to offer come through knowledge of God. And so in chapter one, verse five, faith becomes kind of the gateway for enjoying this kind of knowledge. Notice, add to your faith virtue to virtue, what church? Knowledge. And what are the benefits of knowledge? We find that in chapter one, verse eight. If these qualities are yours, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the what church? The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to enjoy the benefits of secure, anchored, steady faith? Tether your heart to knowledge of God pursue deeper knowledge. It will help you differentiate between the, the lie and the truth so that you can enjoy the benefits of that relationship with God. Understand the benefits of knowledge. Grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And then secondly, grow through submission to God. We'll end with this point. Grow through submission to God. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Lord is the word for sovereign, for authority, for ruler, for he who is in charge, the one who calls the shots in your life. Let Jesus be Lord for you and master for you. Unlike what we find in chapter 2, verse 1, where the, the, the false prophets, it says, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive uh, heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Learn submission. Learn to yield your heart to the sovereign Lord, the master of all. And here's what, here's what makes all of this hard. These fierce, direct, clear words that, that Peter is giving in this letter, what makes this hard is that the language that Peter is using is language for people in the church. You might say this is friendly fire. You might say that this is fighting behind the lines, as it were, in what should be safe territory. But Peter wants to know that, that the angel of light, Satan, who is the adversary seeking whom he may devour, will infiltrate the church and seek to destroy it from within. Jude chapter 4, or excuse me, Jude verse 4 alludes to this same kind of thing when he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed 
who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, while they claim to be recipients of grace, they will shipwreck your faith if you follow after them. They're marked by life that is bent on desire for things outside God. They are those who forget their mission. They are those who get caught up with earthly pursuits. There are those who prioritize comfort over the future. There are those who are enslaved by their appetites. Those who fail to live as aliens and strangers. Those who are consumed with the here and now. Those who are preoccupied with safety and security and peace of mind in the here and now and planning for the future and give no thought for eternity. Sounds familiar. Because those are our tendencies, aren't they? And so as we think about the danger that is presented to us in Second Peter, this will be especially important to help awaken our own hearts and to provide a measure of soberness to us and, and, and maybe even a, a self-check as we examine our own lives as it relates to, to the kinds of habits and attitudes and priorities that we're supposed to have as those who have tethered ourselves to the righteousness of God. Those who recognize our standing in relationship to, to the salvation that God gives in the mission that he has sent us to be on. This is an important, this is an important uh, time in which for us to, to recognize the, the seriousness of the times that we're in. Because there are pastors and teachers and radio programs and books and podcasts that we all submit ourselves to or listen to on a regular basis. And these are the kinds of people that Peter is talking about in this little letter. May God help us to be able to discern the truth from deception. And may God help us to call the people that we love in our families, in communities, the, in, in this church family, to, to, to awaken our hearts to what really matters, the, the truth of who Christ is as Christ and Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Lord, these were hard truths today, but we thank you for the Apostle Peter's willingness to put it right out in the open, to help us recognize what tends to be our own inclination to strive for the things in this life rather than being mindful of the things in the next. Lord, help us as your people to set our minds on things above where Christ is. And may that provide the direction and guidance for our daily life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. God bless you.